0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. So glad you're here. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, as Brian mentioned. Uh, We're going to take a little break from Romans. We've been working our way through that book, and we spent the past month going over one specific paragraph in Romans. Um, And so we're just going to pause for a couple weeks, and we're going to talk about baptism for a couple weeks. And uh, I was originally going to say we're going to do a deep dive into baptism, but I was like, no, no, I'm not that there's no puns, none of that, because I was prepping, and all of them just kind of kept bubbling up to the surface, and it was like, I could easily get, you know, just totally submerged in those, and so no, I might sprinkle some here and there, but no, that's it, I promise, that's it, I'm done, all out of my system, we're good. Okay, so instead, um, instead, (laughs) let's talk about baptism, and uh, take a couple weeks, and just talk about what that means, and, uh, and what it should mean to us, and how it actually can have an impact in our lives, and that's where I hope uh, we land after these two weeks. I want to start, though, with a a, a totally different story. We're going to look in Colossians here today, but I want to actually take you back um, and tell you a story you may have heard, may not have heard, um, that's found in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapters 3 and 4, Joshua was the leader of the Israelites at a specific moment in their history, um, Joshua 3 and 4 tells us the story after um, God's people had left Egypt and were going to the land that God had promised to them. God had told them, this is the place you're going to inhabit this place. I'm going to lead you there. Um, and through a series in the books of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, all this stuff that happens along the way, all these miraculous ways God has to intervene to get them to where they're going. Um, and, and you get to Joshua, the book of Joshua, and they're there, they're like on the edge of it, they're about to go in and finally inhabit the land that God has promised to them, but, but the land is currently being inhabited by other, other nations, um, and, and in order to fully grasp a hold of what God's promised to them, the, the children of Israel are going to have to fight, they're going to have to battle these nations. And, and sort of on the beginning, on the, the eve, before this is about to happen, they've come to, and they're outside of, or just across the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is there, and God speaks to Joshua, and he tells Joshua, you're going to cross the Jordan River, and you're going to do it in this totally and completely miraculous way. And what's going to happen, Joshua, is you're going to tell the people, the priests specifically are going to go first and they're going to carry this ark this um this case that they had that represented god's promise to his people they called it the ark of the covenant covenant just means promise and so this ark was a was a visual representation of this promise that god had made to his people that he was going to give them among other things going to give them this physical land and he said i want the priest to take that ark And as they carry that ark, I want them to walk into the Jordan River. And as they walk into the Jordan River, God says, I'm going to take the water and I'm just going to spread the water out and I'm going to make the land and the bottom of the river just completely dry. I'm going to open up a path in the river and everybody else, the entire nation, while the priests are standing there with the ark, the entire nation is just going to walk across on completely dry ground. And it's going to show everybody that I'm God, I'm in charge, I'm in charge of everything. I'm in charge of them, I'm in charge of this river, I can do whatever I want, because I made it all, and so they're going to go in, and they're going to have to battle these nations, and I want them to know that I am stronger than any of those nations, that I'm stronger than anything. And so whatever comes up, I'm here, and I can handle it all, and so I want them to see this, so they're going to walk across on this dry ground. And then he tells them, and then he tells them this, and when you're done... And when you've crossed through, before the water comes back, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk to the people and tell them from each tribe, there were 12 different tribes in Israel, from each of the 12 tribes, a representative from each tribe needs to find a stone, a big stone, and I want you to take all 12 of these stones, and I want you to take them to the place where the priests were standing with the ark, and I want you to build a monument to stack the 12 stones together as a monument to what has happened. And then after that's all done and the water goes back, but that monument will still be standing. And that as the years go by and things change and you're in the land and people are living there and they're enjoying it and the battles are all over and maybe the miracles aren't happening as regularly, but those 12 stones will still be standing there as a reminder, that I did something incredible. That you didn't get into this land on your own, and it wasn't easy, but I was there. And it was big, and it was miraculous, and it was good. And when people walk by, and and years from now, and this is what God's telling this to Joshua, and Joshua's telling this to the people, that years from now, things are going to change, and you're going to be living in the land, and it's not going to be uh, you know, miracles, and, and God showing up in physical form, and all that, it's just going to be, you're just going to be living there, and people are going to forget, and they're going to forget everything that we walk through, and they're going to forget all the battles, and they're going to forget all the miracles, and, and it's going to happen, that they're going to be walking by, and your kids, and your kids' kids, and your ancestors are going to look at those stones, and they're going to say, what is this? What is the meaning of these stones? And God tells Joshua, Joshua tells the people, when, when you are walking and you see these stones and people say, your children ask you, what is the meaning of these stones? That is an opportunity. It is a time for you to tell them these stones represent that God was with us and that God fought for us and that God is good and God loves us and he is more powerful than any enemy we could ever face. These stones are a reminder. They're a memorial to remind us of God's goodness and God's grace and God's power. What does that have to do with baptism? Why do I tell you that story? Because baptism for us as believers is very, very, very similar to those stones. Baptism is a reminder. It's a memorial. It's a physical, visual symbol of something that God has done in our lives. And like the Israelites, like you, I am very prone to forget. And as I walk through my life day by day by day, and it's normal life, and it's everyday stuff, and it's just average things happening, and I'm not seeing miracles And I'm not seeing God intervene in in these giant spiritual battles every single day. I am prone to forget. And I need, and you need, and we need reminders of what God has done for us. Baptism, baptism is a symbol. A symbol of a powerful victory that God has won in our hearts. There are times that I'm tempted to forget God's deliverance. There are times when what is true in my life, what is true, and it's real and it's there, it's true spiritually, but it feels very, very distant experientially. And in those times, I need to be reminded I need the equivalent of those stones, that memorial. And that, to a believer, is what baptism is. It's a visible symbol of a spiritual reality. And when I say it's a symbol, understand, I am saying, baptism is not, is not some kind of magic ritual that we perform that grants us God's grace. We don't earn God's grace or forgiveness by being baptized. If we could earn it by anything we do, including even baptism, then it wouldn't actually be God's grace. But it is a symbol that represents God's grace, and it's a very, very powerful symbol so don't let that the fact that it's just a symbol don't let that in any way diminish the power or the beauty or the significance of baptism in the life of a believer it's a powerful symbol it's a multi-layered symbol there's so many different elements of the gospel that baptism helps us to picture and to visualize in fact there 's so many we 're not even going to be able to talk we 're doing two weeks. we could do multiple weeks we 're going to talk about two aspects of the symbolism of baptism there 's way more, and we can 't get into all of them. but we do want to talk about two over the next two weeks, because I believe, and I said this at the top, but i 'll say it again, I believe that baptism is a powerful, powerful picture that could actually, when we really grasp what's going on, can give us insight in a way that could really hugely benefit us in our everyday lives. So, just a couple basics as we get started, because Um, one of the things I love about this church, about Trailhead, is that we have people who come to this church from all different faith backgrounds. I love it. And it's so amazing, and we have people here who grew up with totally, vastly different um, ideas and teachings and understandings of baptism, and that is so great. But when I say the word baptism, based on where you're coming from and what your background has been, lots of us hear different things. And lots of us have had different experiences, and we've viewed it in different ways, and we've been taught different things. And so, so here's just kind of like base level, a couple of just, just basic, simple things to get us started in this conversation okay? Um, first of all, the word itself is kind of a funny word. Um, it's, it's a Greek word in the New Testament. Baptisma is the word baptism, the noun. It comes from the verb baptizo, okay? And those Greek words have been translated, or actually we would almost say transliterated when they, were, when they translated the Greek into English, instead of Taking what the kind of the literal meaning and translating it straight in English, they made this sort of um, uh, uh, hybrid word between Greek and English of baptism, except in like one verse. There's one verse in the New Testament where baptizo is translated as wash. And the kind of the literal meaning, and when people in the first century heard baptizo, what they heard was a word that in their language meant to submerge or to plunge and to cleanse. So that's what the word is. For some reason, and it's, you know, I mean, it's fine. This is how they did it, but the translators didn't translate it as wash over and over and over again. They translated it as this word, baptism, and so that's where we are. But it literally means to submerge underwater, to plunge down, and to cleanse, to wash. Um, That's part of why, part of why at Trailhead we practice baptism by immersion. We Dunk all the way under. We go all the way underwater. And I know some different backgrounds, different faiths look at that differently, but we hear plunge, submerge, and that's what we do. Um, the other thing that we do specifically here at Trailhead, we, um, we would call ourselves, you don't need to know this word, but we're credo-baptists. That simply means this. We practice what we call believer's baptism, which means we baptize people who give a confession of believing the gospel. We don't baptize people in hopes that they will believe the gospel. We baptize people who say that they do believe the gospel. We don't baptize people hoping that baptizing them will save them or bring them forgiveness. We baptize them because they believe that God has saved them and has forgiven them. We baptize as a symbol, an outward symbol of something that has happened and is happening internally and spiritually. So, again baseline, what we're saying, baptism for us is we take a human being, shove them under the water, and pull them back up, and we act like that's totally normal. That's, okay, that's weird, isn't it? I mean, that's just kind of a strange thing, okay? Um, And and again, if you grew up in church, if that's your background, then maybe it seems totally normal to you. Let's just pause for a second and admit it's a weird thing to do, okay? Um, And it's a, it is, I mean, you could use the word ritual. Now, I hope, I hope, and as we talk through this, it becomes much more than that, okay, that it's not just an empty practice that we just do because it's what we've done, but that we see the meaning and the depth behind it. And so I want to look at this passage in Colossians together, Colossians chapter 2, and I hope as we look through this, um, maybe it'll bring some light to to why we do things the way we do and uh, why we fall where we do on this topic So Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to first century Christians in a city called Colossae. Um, And he's talking to them, and it's fascinating to me because in verse 8, what I see is that they were dealing with and struggling with some of the exact same things that we deal with today. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There are so many times in my life and in our lives where we um, find ourselves inundated by so many different messages, so many different voices telling us this is how you should see the world. Like we're all in this same world. We're all seeing and experiencing the same things. But how we interpret what we see... Can be totally different. And, and the believers in Colossae, just like us, so often, we're hearing all these different voices and, and we're having a hard time separating out what is truth and what is not. And they were being tempted to believe lies lies about the world, lies about God, lies about themselves. And we can, even though we are believers, And even though we say and we give a confession that we're following Christ and we're trusting in Christ, we can be um, almost subconsciously or unconsciously have our minds transformed by different voices that speak directly opposite to the gospel. We hear so many messages and even our own minds create so many messages that tell us to go in so many different directions that it can be very, very difficult, very difficult, for us to focus in on the one voice, the voice of Christ. But that's where Paul is calling the believers in this passage. He says in verse number 9, well, at the end of verse 8, not according to Christ, he's saying we have to focus on Christ because look at who he is, verse 9, in him, in him, in Christ. The, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's saying, look, You're hearing all these different voices. You're hearing all these different philosophies. Do you understand Jesus is in charge of everything? Do you understand that Jesus is the truth? Do you understand that Jesus is in control of the entire world? Do you understand? Look at verse 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, this is what Paul's saying. Look, Jesus is like the conqueror of all. He has won everything. He has planted his flag as having dominion over the entire universe. And every other authority, every other philosophy, every other idea, every other direction that we're tempted to go in, all of them fall far, far short of the God who is in control of everything. And that's Jesus. And Paul says you have to be on guard, you have to see to it that you don't find yourself drifting away from the one who's in control of everything, who is over everything. He's the ruler of all. He's defeated it all. He's won it all. Don't join the losing team. Jesus is king over everything. Now, why is that true? There's two reasons that that's true, and we see them both in here. First, in verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God. And because Jesus is fully God, and God is the creator of everything, God made all of this, he's in control of all of this. And so Jesus is in control of all of this, because he made it. And when you make something, you get to be in charge of it. When you make something, you determine how it works. When you make something, you determine what its purpose is. And that's God. He made it, so he determines how the world works. He determines what our purpose is. That's him. He's in control of all of it. And Jesus is God, so Jesus is in control of everything. That's part one. But part two is this. Not only is he fully God, but he also won the victory. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He defeated death through his death burial and resurrection jesus won the ultimate victory over the ultimate foe that the one thing that every single one of us no matter how powerful we are right from the most powerful king to the poorest peasant all of us faces at some point in life the greatest foe the ultimate enemy death jesus faced it and he won Jesus conquered death. He conquered death, paradoxically, by dying. Because he was crucified, and and in being crucified, took our sins on himself, and he was crucified, he was buried, and he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And this is why Jesus' resurrection is so foundational to our faith. We've talked a lot recently about how powerful jesus death is on our behalf he took our sins he substituted to take god's wrath on himself and it is so important so important but just as important as jesus death is his resurrection because if jesus took all of that sin and all of that wrath on himself and died and stayed dead then the best we could hope for is like, well, maybe I won't get fully punished, but I'm still going to die. And that's still going to be the end. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. And when you follow Jesus, when you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of the ultimate champion of the entire world. When you follow Jesus, you're following the one who has defeated everyone else. When you follow Jesus, you are following the one who can, the only one who can ultimately lead you into victory. That every other philosophy, every other person who wants to lead, who wants to speak into your life, if they're not going in the direction of Jesus, is ultimately not leading you in the direction of victory. But Jesus, Jesus is. He is the ultimate conqueror. And when we follow him, we are following the ultimate victor. And baptism, baptism, symbolizes that moment, that death, his death, His burial going under the water representing him being buried and then his resurrection coming up out of the water. It's a physical, visible symbol of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection going into the water and coming back out. But, but, you say, wait. Why would me going under the water and coming back out represent something about Jesus? I am so glad you asked. Because this this is where it gets really, really, really good. Because when we trust in Jesus, not only are we following the one who defeated death, but we are united to the one who defeated death. And we, and this is what Paul says here in Colossians, we get to share in his victory. We don't just admire that He won the victory. We win the victory too. Look at it. Verse number 11. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I'm sorry, the circumcision part is a different sermon for a different day. We'll get back maybe some other time. I don't know. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We, listen, oh my God, we believers, we are raised too. We are dead to our sins. We are buried and rise again to new life in Jesus. We are united to Him. He is in us. We are in Him. We are joined together. And baptism doesn't just say Jesus died and buried and was rose again. It says that I, I am dead, but am rising again to new life. We're already dead. Verse number 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh we're dead on the inside sometimes this can be confusing because most of us have an understanding that there's something wrong with us most of the time what we believe in our minds as we think about that is we're bad and we need to be good we're broken and we need to be fixed we're immoral and we need to become more moral We have some problems that need to get better. But the truth, what the scripture teaches us, is that we're not just bad. We're not just immoral. We're not just broken. We are dead. We're dead, spiritually dead. And what are dead people completely unable to do? Well, anything. But specifically, they can't fix themselves. If you're dead, you're not getting better. You're not going to pull yourself up. You're not going to improve yourself. If you're dead, your only hope, your only hope, the only hope for anyone who's dead is resurrection. And that is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is not that we can get better. The promise of the gospel is not that it fixes the broken parts of us. The promise of the gospel is that because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we who are already dead can be resurrected. That we can, to finish the verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is a truth taught throughout the New Testament. The believers in Christ are joined to Christ. And that by being joined to Him, we experience the benefits of His death, burial, and resurrection. That we are made new. That we who in this body have no good within us are raised to a completely new and different life. In fact, Paul even says in a different letter in the New Testament that we are a new creation. That when we go down, we're dead. When we go down in our death, when we come back up, when we are, when we are raised, when we are resurrected, we're not the same person we used to be. We're not a better version of our old selves. We're a totally new version. We have a new life. Jesus applies his own death, burial, and resurrection to our lives, and we are made new. And the life that we live now, we live in him. That our life is so connected to his life, that as we walk through this life, we are walking with him and he is walking with us. And that is transformative. And that changes how we interact. That changes how we see the world. That changes how we approach temptation. That changes how we approach relationships. Because we know that we are not on our own and we are not working in our own power. That we are empowered by Jesus Christ. The best way I can think of um, to, to kind of picture this as a story. I've told this story before, and it's not my story. I desperately wish this was my story. I wish this had happened to me because it's so good. Um, and I'm always tempted to pretend it is, but I just have to be honest. This was a friend of mine. Um, so, Scott, my friend, was at the beach with his son, Bryce. Bryce was like three or four years old, and um, Bryce was playing with a truck in the sand. Scott's sitting a ways back watching. Bryce is playing with this truck, and this like six or seven year old kid, older kid, bigger kid. Then Bryce comes up and he takes the truck and he looks at Bryce and he says, Mine. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know if he said it like that, but I've got to imagine that's how he said it, right? Because it makes the story more dramatic. Mine. But he, so he says, Mine. And he takes the truck and he goes over and he starts playing with Bryce's truck. And Bryce is like, uh, uh, you know, because he's a little kid. Uh, uh, and he's like getting upset. And what is he going to do? Because this big kid just took his truck and he looks over at his dad. He sees his dad sitting there and he thinks for a second and he goes, He runs over and he grabs the truck and he runs back to his dad and plops down on his lap and he looks at the big kid and goes, mine. Because Bryce knew on his own, there's no chance. You can't stop a seventh grader on your own. But his dad, that's no problem. Right? Bryce knew that what was important in that instance was not his own strength or his own power. What was important was the strength and the power of the one who he was with. His father. Okay, can I tell you, believers, our father, bigger than Bryce's father, more powerful than Bryce's father. If you are in Christ, you have the most powerful, most victorious, most authoritative over all the universe power on your side. He is the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay, we, grown-ups, We can find times where we're facing much bigger threats than the seven-year-old stealing our truck. But the power that we have behind us is so much bigger than some 30-year-old man. We who have trusted in Christ are now living in Christ. We are joined to Him. And baptism is a visual way of demonstrating that we are buried with him and risen with him. But let's be honest. We don't always feel that powerful, do we? I don't always feel that powerful. Most of the time, I'll, I'll be honest, I feel pretty weak. I look at my life and what's going on around me, I often feel completely powerless I have no control over these circumstances. I feel like most days I barely have control over myself. Sometimes I feel like my life is not a series of victory after victory after victory. Most days I feel like my life is failure after failure after failure. Sometimes it's just getting by. Frequently, often, I feel the temptation of sin, and and my sins themselves will totally overtake me. That I'm powerless to stop them. That's how I feel. And I would assume many of you feel that way as well often. But feelings are not truth. And we need, in those times... To know and remember the truth here's the problem the, the most deceptive lies the ones that cause the most problem in our minds and in our hearts are the ones that take a little bit of truth and mix it in with some untruth or they take a little bit of truth but they leave out the other more important truth Look, a lot of that, a lot of the way we feel, a lot of our emotions are partly true. And that's why they're so devastating to us. Look, it is true. My sins could overtake me. I could give in to temptation. In fact, I do sometimes give in to temptations. I sin. You sin. And on our own, on my own, my sin could completely overwhelm my life. But in Christ, I am dead to my sins. That my death and burial goes along with his death, which took my sins on him and already paid the penalty. In Christ, I'm dead to my sin and my sin is dead to me. It is nailed, I love it, verse 14, it is nailed to the cross. That's where my sin is. That's where the punishment for my sin is. On my own, I do lose. I do fail. My life is not a series of victory after victory after victory. And anybody who tells you that living as a Christian should be just a series of emotional and spiritual and relational and financial and all those other victories, victory, 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 they are lying to you. That is not the way this works. That is not the world we live in. That's not the promise that God's given us. In this world, we will suffer. That is true. But in Christ, we are joined to the ultimate victory. And regardless, regardless of what failures and losses we suffer here and now, we have a promise that there will come a day When we will ultimately join in his victory as the whole world is made new and we live forever and reign forever with him in victory over this whole world. That is a promise to us. And so, yes, there is loss. Yes, there is pain and there is hurt now in this world. That is true. But it is not the end, it's not the period on the sentence, it's just the comma. That there is a world coming, and we, who are joined to Christ, will share in that victory with Him. Okay, It is true. I am weak. On my own, I am powerless. That everything that I look at and say that I should be doing, how I should be living, what I should be saying, what I should be... I just can't. And the weight of the world and the weight of my former sin and my present sin, the weight of relationships, the weight of expectations, the weight of everything can crush me if I'm trying to hold it all up on my own. It is true that I am weak, but in Christ, He is strong. And if I'm in Christ, I'm not the one who has to hold it all up. That he's the one who's holding me and everything that threatens to crush me. And that I am actually, in my weakness, made even more aware of his strength. Paul would say it this way, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because then I recognize and I see that it's not about me. That at my lowest point is when I'm most able to have my eyes open and to see his strength and his goodness. And I am so prone to forgetting all of that. And I am so prone to thinking that I have to, on my own, in my own power, fight everything, that I have to win my battles that I have to carry the weight of my sin, that I have to earn my own forgiveness, that I have to fix the brokenness in the world around me. But when I remember that I'm in Christ and that all of those responsibilities are His, then I can look to Him. And I can be encouraged And I don't have to walk through life with a constant fear, worry, despair, but I can look to him with hope. And that's the beautiful symbol of baptism. It symbolizes our union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and it can serve as a reminder that all of those things that are true of Christ are true of us. That because He died and was buried and rose again, that when we are joined to Him, that we die to our current selves, and that we're buried and we rise again a new creation, that those things are true of us as well. We are victorious as well. Whether we feel it or not, it's true. Listen, if you're a believer in Christ, if you believe that His death was to take your sins and that his resurrection could purchase your victory, if that's you, if you have trusted in and are trusting in that, and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you, get baptized. Do it. Publicly proclaim, I accept these truths for myself. Allow yourself to be dunked under, to represent what you already know is true. You're dead. But to come back up, not in your own power right? When we baptize people, they don't climb in the tank, dunk down, and push themselves back up. That you have to be raised, because dead people can't raise themselves, but be raised up out of the water to proclaim, I have been raised in Christ. Do it. Hey, we're going to do a baptism in two weeks. If you've never been baptized, I encourage you, go out to Connection Point, sign up. If you have more questions, that's fine. We'd love to talk to you about it. We want to talk to you about it. We want to hear your story. We want to know what that means for you, that you're trusting in Christ's sacrifice. But we would love, we would love to celebrate with you this memorial, this symbol, this visual representation of what Christ has done in your heart. What he is doing in your life. Make it public. If you have been baptized, if you have been baptized, but you are like me, and you go through times of extreme doubt, and extreme weakness, and extreme struggle. Why am I saying extreme? If you go through any doubt, or any weakness, or any struggle, and you're tempted, and you're tempted by different philosophies, and you're tempted to go in a different direction, and you're tempted to question whether God truly even loves you, whether it's even real, whether there really was a time in your life where God did something miraculous, because now everything just feels so mundane and so normal, and you're tempted to forget, look back to your baptism. And maybe, look, maybe when you were baptized, maybe you didn't understand all this, Maybe you weren't thinking of it as a symbol of any of those things. Maybe you just did it because you came from a tradition where they were like, if you believe the gospel, you have to get baptized. Why? I don't know. Boom. You're good. Maybe, maybe, maybe you believed that it actually would save you when you did that. Maybe, maybe you were like me. I was a kid, and in our church, the only way you were allowed to take communion was if you'd been baptized. So I was like, well, I want to get baptized because I want some juice. Maybe that... I don't know. I don't know what your background was, but whatever your background was, if you are a believer and you have been baptized, recognize and now look back and remember, Christ has won the victory and you share in that victory with Him. And when you are tempted to hopelessness, and when you are tempted to forget, and when you are tempted to doubt, look back not because your baptism saved you, but because your baptism reminds you of the God who saved you. And that God is more powerful than your doubts. He is more powerful than your despair. He is more powerful than all the circumstances surrounding you. He is God, and you're with Him. He's going before you, He's fighting your battles. He ultimately will lead you into the ultimate victory. So here's what I want to do. We're going to take some time. We'll pray and then we'll have some time of reflection. Instead of questions, reflection questions, I'm going to put a scripture up on the screen. And I want you to read this scripture and I want you to think about it and I want you to reflect on it and I want you to ask how your baptism is a reminder of this truth in your life life so let's pray we'll reflect and then we'll take some time to share communion together heavenly father god i'm so thankful i'm thankful for my baptism not because it by itself saved me but because you saved me and it reminds me of your goodness and your grace and your salvation thank you God, I pray for everyone who's here today. For those who have not believed in the gospel, I pray that their hearts and their eyes would be open, that they would hear your call, that they would trust in you. For those of us who have and are trusting in your gospel, I pray that you would remind us again of your goodness and your grace, what it means to be in you, how we've been transformed. Even when we don't feel it, even when life is hard, that we can trust in you, that we can rest in you. God, please encourage our hearts today. Please lead us to follow you more with, with greater love, with deeper affection. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.